0: and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is not a stranger to many, most dare I say all of you, that have been on this podcasting journey with me. It's Bill Bohr. Bill is a pastor, a church leadership consultant. He does lots of interfaith work. He's the co-host of New Persuasive Words, and most importantly, a near and dear friend. Bill, welcome back to the Synaxis podcast we are this is like a double shot today
1: yeah good to be here great passages well they're always great i know
0: i always say i feel weird whenever i say that great passages as if like there are certain <laughs> every you know there's there there are two kinds of people right the people that have a canon with a canon and the people that admit it
1: <laughs> well, well so we have the climax of many ways of the joseph narrative
0: yeah, which is the longest narrative cycle in Genesis. Yeah, yeah. It's almost its own kind of—there's
1: uh, been all kinds of work. It's its own kind of literary unit. Um,
0: but I think— um, well, What's co- fascinating about it, too, is that Joseph does not really become a biblical theological character of significance in either Testament.
1: Though that There was some Joseph Christology in the early church.
0: Yeah, but it's not, but you don't find that in the New Testament. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't, Like You get the reference in Hebrews 11 to him with the sons. Right. And and, and that is by faith, but you don't really get a lot of Josephology.
1: No, you you seem, and it it would be really conducive to do that. You know, there's an interesting book that's just been translated from the Hebrew. It's called The Secret Book of Kings, and it's kind of the alternative history. Uh, What if David hadn't won? You know, so it's... uh, it's from the tribes of Ephraim's perspective, which were the Joseph tribes. So you, you could argue that Joseph serves here as the second father, the father of preservation for the children of Israel uh, in, 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 in many ways. He does, you know, he even sees his own mission as preserving his people. Um, and certainly the Joseph cycle serves as kind of a morality play. Uh, becomes a template if you would for the long history of having to survive as a jew in pagan courts and uh, certainly it uh, it is in the same kind of vein of what esther is and and others so I, I think it's it's fascinating that way and it also just is a you know it's a it's a great family tragedy redemption story as well
0: yeah what happens when everybody knows someone's the favorite child it, it's a uh, it Often doesn't go well for anybody.
1: Well, right, and when the favorite child also flaunts that
0: in front of exactly, it's
1: but also the
0: tragedy of uh, you, know. you think that's Ivanka, <laughs> and pretty clearly it's yeah. not certainly not Tiffany, well, and it you, seems like Eric doesn't get a lot of love from the Trump family. Well,
1: you know, they're, they're one of the one of the consistent sub themes into the patriarchal narratives is what happens when you favor a child, the tragedies that involve with that and the brokenness of the family, whether it's uh, you know, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and
0: Esau, and certainly. In, Emilio Estevez yeah. and Charlie Sheen, Emilio, yeah. definitely. Is and,
1: uh, and in the Joseph narrative, same thing happens. Um, I, I also think the kind of, in, it's, um, you know, in the Hebrew, we you know, Joseph is really messy with his brothers in the early part. I mean, it's always interesting what gets, uh, Gets how it gets translated, but Joseph says some pretty obscene things to the brothers earlier on when and and in playing with the whole thing about you know p- putting stuff in their bags and testing them. I mean, uh, you know, we always treat it as that Joseph testing them, but I think Joseph is you know testing himself. To, can he really forgive them as well?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's I mean, that I think that is true, and it's interesting too that. I think that in some ways, the long Joseph narrative is really about the redemption of Judah. I mean, you, you cause you begin early on and he's this, he's, he's one of the ringleaders kind of conspiring against Joseph as an older brother. And then you get that strange story of Tamar where right. Judah, his sons keep dying and, uh, you know, he doesn't want to give the kinsman redeemer, you know, he doesn't want to marry off any more sons to this right woman because he but you know again the lack of self-awareness of the father he's sort of well it can't be her it's got it can't be it can't be me and my my kids it's got to be her and then she tamar right uh you know dressed up as a prostitute deceives him and he when they hear that that his daughter-in-law has been whoring herself out he's i I mean i think the hebrew there just says burn like we're gonna burn her right right? and then and then she brings his signet, like you left me the signet. And then it's interesting because he seems to have more self awareness. He's like, "You're more righteous than me." Right? I mean, he he doesn't say he's like she's done some deceptive things and she's you know done some unsavory things, but he realizes, okay, I, I, I'm I'm in the wrong here. And then by the end of the story, this part where you see jo- Ju- Joseph so moved, it's the one who you know who, who conspired to the end of. The father's favorite son's demise offers himself in the place of Benjamin because it would break his father's heart. So there's this vicarious offering of of Judah for Benjamin, which I think is what undoes Joseph. Like wow, like look at this is a different Judah in front of me.
1: Yeah, I I certainly think the the Davidic redactors probably. Uh, that that's certainly that that emphasis comes in the story, I also think though joseph uh you know towards it's at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph somewhat redeems the failure of Cain, you know there's a sense where Joseph's older brothers were not his keeper As a matter of fact they 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 reenact the sin of cain uh but Joseph breaks the cycle here
0: yeah and and yeah and and is a redeemer, not just of Israel, and this is where you do see the the sensibility of the of the Joseph Christology, because he's right. the savior of Israel and the greater world through the famine and through the wisdom, and and also a great thing. Like as you were talking about the exile, here's this, here's someone where unlike Abraham or Jacob, there's not God doesn't talk to Joseph like we don't even. He says God gives me the interpretation of the dream, but you know that's almost like you know uh, you yeah. say I was really inspired by there. God must have, the spirit must be with me. I mean, you have. This sense in which th- there there's a, there's almost no story where there seems to be such operative providence right and yet God not speaking God remaining silent god you know it's not there, there there's not epiphanies and theophanies like you have with other patriarchs so it's you know he's faithful in the midst of what ordinary existence of most of the people of God are faithful in the midst of. They're not getting theophanies and, right. and, and, and and stairways from heaven and things like that. Yeah, I
1: think that's why he's partially a model for those later on who are in exile and have to deal with that. I think the other thing, though, the, the theodicy behind it, obviously, is both helpful. It's it's kind of the Sunday school punchline, you know, that which you wish for evil, you know, God is will for good. I think that's the King James Version, how I was taught. And that's certainly... True. I mean, if it hadn't been for Joseph's position in the Egyptian court, which and have it had fortunately probably they were Semitic the Semitic pharaohs, they were not probably the natural pharaohs. That's historically there was a Semitic group that were running had invaded Egypt and so they were actually probably Joseph's cousins, are the Semitic cousins to the Hebrews, running Egypt at this point. So on the, in the short run, or more than the short run, it, it certainly was a preserving act that, uh, that, you know, their salvation because of Joseph's sacrifice and, and suffering. However, you know, one generation's salvation is the next generation's um, bondage. And so being in Egypt both saved them and also turned them into a slave people.
0: Yeah and I, yeah I mean yeah, I think that's that's right and it, it's interesting too you with the providence and the redemption the redemption isn't just happening at the end it's all the way through i mean as you can see working on on judah and working on joseph i mean sure no, i'm I sure so. the, the bitterness and thinking about well, gosh i was kind of maybe well, maybe there's a reason my brothers
1: maybe it's a little extreme but <laughs> well i mean that's why i mean in Hebrew, his language is really obscene in the earlier chapters. Yeah, you know, i th- I don't know how it's translated this for how you, what, you're, what are you poking around down here? With? In the Hebrew, it's much more, it's a little, a little bawdier than that. So he's not, he's not being, uh, yeah, I think it's not clear to me that Joseph knows how he's ultimately going to come out on this issue.
0: And I love, I love like Joseph's attitude. It's like, hey, this is a prison, but it doesn't have to feel like it. You know, like, <laughs> guys, always, uh, you know, he's always, uh, he's there's something about blooming where he's yeah. planted that's a beautiful thing in the Joseph story. Yeah, and uh, good, but I think you have to be careful. This gets back to making
1: ultimate statements about what's going on historically. Yeah, and uh, one good day, one one seeming day of salvation doesn't necessarily work out for the future. One of the things that reminds me of you know, good King Hezekiah is sick and he um, prays that his life would be preserved, and he he does. He recovers from sickness long enough to produce Manasseh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is why
0: I think that the the interpretive thing has to be like Christ's death and resurrection and hope for new creation because within every, yeah within every mini resurrection there's always deaths on the other side of them right, right. they're not yeah you know, so I mean yeah I think that's that's right to be careful how you how we sort of read the tea leaves
1: right but I think Joseph is a I think your what your earlier statement of Joseph not being a seer makes him uh, makes him someone that you can emulate in powerless difficult situations
0: yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and yeah, again, that's the the Christ figure there, I mean, really interesting, uh, and Judah too, I mean, there's this kind of, it's interesting that it's in, ultimately, it's in both of these people, like, that, that where the redemption comes through powerlessness, through giving up power in Judah, like, I mean, in this sort of, like, there's a reconciliation triggered by Judah's laying down his own sort of power. Yeah. I'm alone.
1: Home and so all
0: alone like I never home be. On to first Corinthians fifteen, which is like the the end of Paul's resurrection kind of argument where this is a fifteen verses thirty-five through thirty-eight and forty-two through fifty, where he talks about you know he's he said sort of in the in the first Section of the chapter that basically, it, you know, you could. There are witnesses to this resurrection. That this was not. This is something that happened in history, and then he goes on with a kind of syllogism. Like, if there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. Then we're to be the most pitiable. And then he gets to the sort of physics of it. You know, how yeah. are the dead raised? What kind of body? Uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he talks about, you know, this it, 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 that when it goes in the ground, it can come up. And then there's a. Uh, you know, there's the the Adam, the first and last Adam parallels, and then this great line that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Yeah, it's always struck me, this section of chapter 15, which in many ways,
1: I think 15 is the punchline for the whole book. Uh, if you want to if you wanna say what's wrong, what's the core problem with the Corinthians, and they don't take, because they don't take the resurrection seriously, they don't take bodies seriously. And because they don't take bodies seriously, they don't take life in the material world seriously. But what's always struck me at this section is, okay, I'm not sure what his sources are, what the resurrected body is going to be like. It always strikes me as kind of a uh, metaphysical taxidermy here. He's trying to figure things out a little bit, which I always find, uh, in many ways, this is kind of the the most uh, oblique of the whole whole, uh, chapter. Though, you know, it's the kind of question people ask. You know, they ask... (laughs) well what's going to happen? what's it going to be like and so it's it's a pastoral response to a question that people had in the first century, I think particularly in a hellenistically leaning community you know, well you know we're not even sure we want bodies I, you know the whole resurrection of the body doesn't really sound that appealing to us anyway and then so, what in the world is this going to look like? and so I think he's trying to i think uh I think he's his language is being pushed to its limit here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting too. I think that you have to kind of, um, I mean, I, I think the resurrection well, in general, like eschatology and the whole Christian life, right? There's, there's there's the already not yetness, right? So like, so much, how much of like the sort of falling off the horse to you know one side or the other of the horse in Christianity is like over under realized eschatology, right? Like over realized eschatology. Hey, we're living in the kingdom now. You know, we're we're it's all it's all here. Uh, you know, this is, you know, the, and really, history and human nature bears out that it's not all here yet. And yet, if you have an under eschatology, it's sort of, you have this sort of Christian life that's, uh, you know, all right, I'm just hanging on to tell. To tell to, to, hold the you know.
1: fort, I'm coming. Not exactly. I'm exactly.
0: And also, I think with, with the resurrection, like, there's continuity and discontinuity right that somehow the the redeemed life that God promises for the people of God is in continuity with this life right so that so that I think what you're saying is Israel you know the the ethical concerns that you're not gnostic you're not indifferent right. you, there's not the demonization or or marginalization of physicality of the body. But you you also, there has to be discontinuity for, you know, the lion to lay down with the lamb, you know,
1: (laughs) and and for one to not be the
0: supper of the other.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right. And again, even the term spiritual body. Okay. Now what in the world would a spiritual body be? I think that also reminds us that a lot of our um, kind of popular notions of heaven have nothing to do with the Bible. I mean, I think you you come away from this passage with the promise of the resurrection, but not a real clear sense of what that looks like. And I think that's okay. I mean, I, I've talked about I don't know, not maybe not here, but maybe other places that so much of our concept of heaven is more influenced by Swedenborgianism than than biblical. I mean, I did this yeah. thing
0: with with undergrads before I, at a Christian College. I had them like I printed out every verse in the New Testament that dealt with the soul and. I asked them at the end of the day what that told them about what the soul is. And they said, well, not much. And we had just read um, some platonic dialogues and are like, how much do you think the Plato shapes what you think of the soul and how much the Bible? And they were like, oh, I guess really it's Plato (laughs) because you're really, I mean, there's not a lot metaphysically about what the soul is mentioned a lot. Uh, And this is the same thing with, you know, a lot of our popular notions of heaven and things like that are, are, yeah, absolutely like taken from different metaphysical traditions.
1: Although if you kind of want to see, you know, the, the classic idea that Christianity is a synthesis between Greek and he- Hebraic thought, I think you have that right. I think you have that merger right here in the person of Paul. Right? Yeah. And I think that's fine. It's kind of fascinating to see that kind of, I don't know. It's almost like uh, this is the scrap paper. He's kind of working on the side, trying to figure this out as he goes along. And maybe, you know, maybe this is in a, uh, you know, I don't remember there being much speculation in apocalyptic literature about this, but there could be, Things I have not read are things we don't have anymore, as well. That was a source for the speculation.
0: It's interesting. In Benedict the Sixteenth's second volume on Jesus of Nazareth, he his section on the resurrection. He has three points. He says to sim- summarize what the biblical tradition tells us: it's it's like to encounter the risen Lord. One, Jesus did not simply return to normal biological life as one who, by the laws of biology, would eventually have to die again. Second, Jesus is not a ghost. In other words, he does not belong to the realm of the dead, but is somehow able to reveal himself in the realm of the living. And third is, nevertheless, the encounters with the Risen Lord are not the same as mystical experiences, in which the human spirit is momentarily drawn aloft out of itself and perceives the realm of the divine and eternal, only to return then to the normal horizon of its existence. Mystical experience is a temporary removal of the soul's spatial and cognitive limitations, but it is not an encounter with a person coming toward me from without. St. Paul clearly distinguished his mystical experiences, such as his elevation of the third heaven described in 2 Corinthians 12, from his encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, which was a historical event and encounter with a living person. So that's interesting. I mean, the, the Benedict there is saying, well, it's, it's kind of not this, it's not this, it's not this. It gets harder to say what it is. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think probably
1: uh, what, were, what were Paul's chief sources for speculation about this? Well, what he talks about earlier in the chapter Eyewitness accounts, yes. So those with whom he had had conversations about, and he had his own encounter with the resurrected Christ. So he saw something. Are as he one it?
0: untimely born, yeah. What? Last unto me, I love when he says that. You know, uh-huh. last he appeared to me as one I'm untimely one. Born. born. I love yeah, that phrase. Yeah, it is. Right. On to the gospel here. We have Luke 6 and the injunctions about um, loving your enemies, 6, 27 through 38. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who, who curse you, uh, give to everyone who begs from you, and, and so forth and so forth. And then you have the command to love those who are your enemies, because even sinners love the people that you know love them and, and do good to them. And you have the, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Don't condemn, you'll not be condemned. Forgiven, you'll be forgiven. Uh, So, yeah, this this sort of uh, Lucan, the Sermon on the Plain. Yeah. Last week, my sermon title was a plain sermon. I like that. Yeah. Well, one of the
1: things I think that uh, maybe at least at one point in all of our lives as preachers, if not on a regular basis, sometimes it wouldn't be a bad idea to read the words of Jesus and just say, I think he covers it. No, you get paid a lot of money to say no, first Jesus, of, for, Jesus doesn't mean what he says. Well, first of all, I don't get paid a lot of money. There you go. That's true. <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, I think he. I think sometimes I even made a joke about this last week. I made a or uh, uh, yesterday actually. Um, yesterday was Sunday, uh, but I said, uh, you know what I think Jesus means when he tells us where to love our enemies. I'm pretty sure it means, and I've read this in the Greek as well. That he wants us to love our enemies. It's a metaphor,
0: yeah. For I don't know what.
1: <laughs> That's right. really—it's a metaphor for him. He really wants us to hate our enemies.
0: Exactly. <laughs> it's a metaphor for uh, I don't know for something.
1: You know, I remember as a kid, um, and we yeah, you know, I grew up in a church. We had you know Sunday morning, Sunday night, and our minister said, "Tonight you're going to hear the greatest sermon I've ever I've ever preached." I just, you know. So we showed up that Sunday night, and. Uh, he, he he went off stage, or went behind the the, the pulpit, and uh, where you couldn't see him, put a light on a picture of Jesus and read the Sermon on the Mount.
0: All right, I like that.
1: Yeah, I'm for that. Yeah, so I would uh, I, my my chief my chief um, hope would be that we don't uh, just like I said last week. blessed are those who don't spiritualize <laughs> Luke chapter six. Uh, Bless are you that don't try to explain this away. We're called to love our enemies. We are told we're going to be forget, forgiven and judged as we forgive and as we judge. He might actually mean that. He says it a lot. He says it like every other uh, pericope in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. So, it is a very good word of warning, and probably this, this passage represents it. It's certainly in other places that which is most maybe most radical about the gospel of Jesus
0: Christ. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting here because— you, you think about this like is the is this good how is this good news right or i think you're right is it is it warning is it is it it's it's it should be preached right i mean it should be taken as universally condemning right cuz on this standard nobody would be redeemed if everyone judged as they were judged and everybody forgave as they forgive and everybody like w- was assessed that way and and then the kingdom would be a, a pretty unpopulated place (laughs) right but
1: i also think in terms of if the gospels are written for the church to the church um by the church then i do think these are words that are i I mean to me only say okay that we're just all good we can't none of us could do this therefore we what do you do with it when you say that none of us can do this
0: well i mean i think that it it keeps us humble and it sure absolutely and, and it it should kind of i mean it it should keep us to the place. I mean, it's it's interesting because the words of Jesus, right, to the woman who comes in and uh, wa- washes his, uh, his feet with the hair, and says this Simon the Pharisee, right, like oh the, the Luke version, of yeah, 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 yeah. He says, you know, the one who forgives much uh, loves much. much be, yeah, the one who who is forgiven little loves little, and right. I think that to the degree that which th- this message uh, is a word of. Is right warning and 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 it leaves us all in the dock that it leaves us in this pl- in this place of oh my god uh we've been forgiven much we ought to love much like we well, ought, yeah we ought to be incredibly yeah uh, humble and generous because of the generosity that's shown us given yeah if this is the standard we 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 are we are we all lead uh, leave a lot to be desired and so there there should be this kind of humbling. I, oh absolutely. I was, yeah. You know, they, I, yeah,
1: I, and I'm thinking about for our brothers and sisters who are uh, Methodists I was with a bunch of uh, a number of Methodists this week in a conference in in Dallas and uh certainly we have Was that, Jason Michelle there. No, he was not. But there's some friends of How is Jason not invited? Uh he's not part of this uh group. Okay. But uh certainly there's a lot of friends of the show, uh, certainly my colleagues at this uh many conference and uh the 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 you know, I what you what you said there brings to mind that what is both encouraging and damning about this passage is this is spoken to both sides of any argument. Right, right. Yeah. course <laughs> yeah. because you want to be judgmental about the people you think that are judgmental. Absolutely. But then you've just been judged. You just yeah. judged. Yeah. And I think the other thing, too, I mean, this, you know, if you love your enemies and they're no longer your enemies, at least from your perspective, it's kind of like if God so loved the world, suddenly in bold face, we have, oh, God, you know, we certainly had hints of it, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but he comes right out and says, well, wait a minute, God doesn't really have enemies if he loves everybody, and that we're supposed to be imitators of God that way. So I think you're right. I think the humility brings us to our prayers of confession precisely because, you know, who, if you're really, the more you you sell, particularly that's interesting going into Lent. I mean, if you would just use this passage as a daily self-examination during Lent, I don't, I think you could do... you would be well served for your soul.
0: Yeah. And and also I think ultimately like the Beatitudes, right. Are a description of Jesus. I mean, they are like, he is the one who loves his enemies. He is the one who judges not. I mean, he is, he's poor. He is poor, poor in spirit and poor Poor, literally. Yeah. 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 So that ultimately, you know, if we're united to Christ and, and that's what the spirit does, I mean, it's, it's, this is the fruit of the spirit, right? It, 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 the, the spirit smells looks like jesus and, and this is you know the sermon on the mount is i mean that's great about the reading it and with putting the picture of jesus because it is jesus
1: right and i think the ultimate thing is this is the ultimate uh, bomb for tribalism
0: yeah this blows it up yeah well thanks everybody blessings in your preaching and hearing of the word this week and thank you Bill. thank you scott Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Bill for being on the podcast. And thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends. Fare thee well.